Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Hey, uh, welcome, everybody. We're really glad that you're here. Does anybody have any clue what this is a picture of? you have any idea what that might be a picture of? Flashlights. It's a, it's a concert. And it's not just flashlights. It's, uh, it's a certain kind of flashlight, variation of flashlight. It's people's phones. It's people's cell phones. Imagine you had a time traveler from 100 years ago, and you were like, oh, yeah, get your phone out so you can turn the flashlight on so you can look for something that you lost in the dark. It would be like, what? What are you talking about? I think it's so interesting with these cell phones that they've got all this incredible technology. Like, I, I can listen to every song that has ever been recorded in the history of the universe, I think, maybe. I don't know why I'd want to, but I could. Uh, I have access to all the information right at, right at my fingertips. I have it all. But the feature that I use most often on my smartphone is the flashlight because I'm walking around in the dark, you know, trying not to wake family up or I drop something in the, in the spot between my seat and the console in the car and I can't find it. This is a feature I use all the time and I can't imagine what that meeting was like when, they, when they, somebody suggested, hey, why don't we add a flashlight to this thing? And they're like, it's not a Swiss army knife. What are you talking about? And it's become one of the most incredible features on a phone. I, I literally use it every single day. I just, I just want to see the guy said, hey, what if we put a really bright light on it too? And everybody's like, what are you talking about? We're in this series called There is a Light, and what we've been doing is focusing on uh, John, the Gospel of John, on his philosophical nativity. It's not like Luke, where Luke just gives us the story beat by beat, step by step, and we're following this narrative. John is doing something different, and I showed you this picture last week to try to highlight how John is different than the other Gospels. Remember, does anybody remember the, the, the big theological word to describe the first three Gospels? They're called the what? Synoptic Gospels, very good. And then John is just doing his own thing. He doesn't follow the chronological order. He doesn't tell you all the stories that the other guys do. They're just doing his own thing. And I thought this picture was funny. Again, not to imply that John's not serious, but that John is just kind of, he's just marching to the beat of a different drummer. And I appreciate that. And one of the things that he does differently is he doesn't just tell us, hey, here's how the birth of Jesus happened, but here's what the experience was like. Here's what it felt like. And you recall last week, we talked about what the experience of being around Jesus, of Jesus arriving into the world was the experience of someone turning on a light in a dark place. That's what it felt like. It felt like, remember, we, we described how they used the concept of light in the Old Testament. It was truth and it was goodness and it was presence and it was hope. That was the experience of being around Jesus. And that's John chapter 1, verse 4, which Henry read uh, for us. John 1, 4, in him, this is Jesus, was life. And that life was light of all mankind, was the light of all mankind. That truth and goodness and presence and hope. So Jesus is the embodiment of all that. But then there's this, this, this turn, this twist. If there's, if there's a musical score behind the text, it goes from these bright major notes to something minor, something a little bit darker. In John chapter 1, verse 5, it says the light shines in the darkness. They're introducing a new character. But that makes sense. If there's light, there's darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what is darkness? What is darkness? I think if we're thinking philosophically, we all kind of have a category for darkness. Darkness feels like serious evil. 
It feels like serious evil. It feels like serial killers. It feels like, like dictators. It, it, it feels like people who drive in the passing lane. It's like that serious, like, what is wrong with you? It just feels like something that's wrong and bad. My first thought was about, and every time I've thought about this biblically, and, and I don't know, maybe this is just the way that I was shaped, my experiences, but my first thought, every time I think of darkness, particularly in this passage, I think of um, a feeling that I had growing up overseas. Now, in Taiwan, I know you guys all have heard tons of times, grew up overseas, I was there for about seven years. In Taiwan, they have temples everywhere. Per capita, there are more temples in Taiwan than there are churches in the U.S. There's so many. And if you've been to certain parts of the South, you're like, there's a church for every single person. There are a lot of temples in Taiwan. So these are pictures that my, uh, my mom probably took, my parents took, one of, the, one of them, I'm guessing my mom. Uh, and this is a picture of a temple near where we lived in Taiwan. And you can see there are these beautiful, ornate, and just detailed, colorful structures and they're open and accessible. There's no, there, there's no problem with somebody coming in, like me, who's a non-practitioner, coming in and looking at it and taking pictures. They don't mind that. That's not offensive uh, at all. And so occasionally, I might be in a local temple showing a, a friend or with a local friend who's going to the temple for some reason. And inside, they're just densely filled with, well, here, with pictures or with, with uh, carvings, these, these idols that have been made, just completely ornate. And you can kind of see here at the bottom of the screen are some offerings that have been given to these idols. So you walk into a place like that, it's just full, just from, from ceiling to floor with these idols. Now, what was wild is that often just around the corner was the little shop where the idols were actually made. And so here's a gentleman actually covering an idol that has been formed with plaster uh, prior to it being painted. And it is such a strange, surreal experience to see people walking into a temple, worshiping this idol, and then be able to walk around the corner and see a guy making it, forming it, putting it together before it's painted, before it's installed and established. Of course, the ceremony is elaborate and expensive where the idol gets put into uh, the temple. Uh, idols would be carried in, and it's, it's very, very fascinating. won't get into it too much. Uh, but then thousands of people show up, and they make sacrifices and offerings to it. Now, on top of a lot of the temples are these three particular gods, these three particular gods called the three immortals. And these three particular gods stand for, feel free to Google it, Wikipedia, it, the, these three particular gods stand for prosperity, status, and longevity. Prosperity, status, and longevity. So the idea is, is that if you want prosperity, status, and longevity, you go into these idols and you make the appropriate sacrifices to the appropriate gods. That's how you would achieve that. Now, no one told me how I should feel going into the temples. Nobody primed me. Nobody took me aside and said, Patrick, this is what's going on. This is the situation. Nothing like that. But the experience of walking into a temple and just looking around, just as, a, just as an observer, the best way I could describe it, you know, even I expected sort of a detached cultural interest, like you're going to another country and you're just observing the way things are and learning. That's kind of what I expected. Nobody told me to feel any differently. But what I experienced was a sense of ominous hopelessness. That's the experience. Again, nobody said, Patrick, this is what you should feel. This is just what I felt. 
The, and no joke, and I was talking to my parents about this this week, my mom, the, the very first thing that you wanted to do when you went into a temple was leave. That's what you wanted to do. You're like, I want to get out of here. I don't like this. I don't like this feeling. The best way, and this is why this word works for me, the best way I could describe it was it felt dark. It just felt dark. So when John introduces this concept of darkness, this is what springs to Patrick's mind, at least. And so I'm bringing you all along that journey as well. Now, but the darkness in the temple, wasn't, it wasn't like serious evil. It wasn't that serial killer, you know, dictator vibe. It, you didn't feel angry like you would at evil and injustice. You felt sad. You felt sad. Because desperate people were being duped into believing that if they offered just the right sacrifice in just the right way, at just the right time, then maybe the gods would bless them with prosperity and longevity and status. Now, you think about that, and it's maybe... It, well, here's, here's, the, here's the phrase. This is, a, this is the phrase. It's, it's desperate futility. That's the phrase. Desperate futility. If I just do this just right, then maybe good things will happen for me. That's, the, that's, the, that's darkness. Darkness felt like desperate futility. When you're frantically trying to find life and light, meaning truth and goodness and presence and hope, in things incapable of providing it. That's what it feels like. Desperate futility. Now, we would never go to a temple... And we would never offer sacrifices to idols. We modern Westerners are so much more enlightened than they. We're so much smarter. We've gotten it figured out. How We wouldn't buy into some silly philosophy or some silly religion or some silly way of thinking. We're so much smarter. We're more enlightened. But listen, do you, do you think people ever try to find prosperity and status and longevity in a presidential candidate? Do you think that people ever compromise some of their spiritual, moral principles to support a politician that doesn't agree with them so that they can get what they want, some sense of security, some sense of prosperity, so that things, their future will look better or their kids' future will look better? Do you not think that in the same way that, that somebody might march into a temple and offer incense or offer apples or offer some sacrifices, you actually can buy paper money and then you burn paper money to your ancestors? Do you ever think that people invest their time and energy and resources in things hoping to get prosperity and longevity and status in things that can't really provide it? I mean, we do the same thing. This is wild to me. We do it with politics. We do it with careers. You've seen people sacrifice their family at the altar of a career, hoping that career will pay off. And then 25 years later, they get a cheap watch and they get a, a, a layoff slipper saying, or slip saying that, you know, sorry, this, we're downsizing and you're the one that's out. You know, but they've sacrificed all this stuff. Or how about status symbols? Like, like any status symbol or a Facebook status where we try to explain to people how our lives are so great because we hope that that validation that we get from that status will make us feel better about the investment that we placed in these things that can't truly provide light and life. Or how about kids' activities and achievements? If our kids just are successful, then all the sacrifices will have been worth it. All the spiritual sacrifices that we've made for ourselves and on their behalf will have been worth it. They will have 
status and prosperity and longevity. I think we do the exact same thing that people in Taiwan do. I think we have the same temptations. Our temples don't look like their temples. Our idols don't look like their idols. But it's the exact same problem. It's the exact same issue. There is a lot of desperate futility in our modern Western world, too. Now, I think one of, the, one, one of a great example of this, you talk about longevity. Nobody, nobody wants to look older. In fact, it's a compliment if you tell somebody they look young for their age. That's a compliment, and as a society, we've just accepted that that's a good thing, that you should look younger than your actual age. It shouldn't matter, right? If we truly understand the the world, the way God has wired us, the way God has created, it shouldn't matter whether we look our age or not. So we have wrinkles, gray hair is a crown of glory, the Bible says, but we try to hide it. Why? Because we're sacrificing at the altar of longevity, maybe? There's a lot of desperate futility in our modern Western world. Hey, did I mention this is a Christmas sermon? <laughs> Fun times, huh? You know, you're like, man, I should have brought my friend. They've been really excited. John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 9. This is just a few verses later from where we were. He writes, this was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. And let me just say this on the outset. There is only, and there only ever has been, one source of truth and goodness and presence and hope. And that has only ever been Jesus. Anything else, anything else we try to find truth and goodness and presence and hope in is a false idol. Man, that's good enough. We could just stop right there, right? Unfortunately for you, I've got more to say. Now, there's a, it's interesting in, in verse 10, John 9, this is the true light that comes to the world, enlightens every person. But in verse 10, it says he was in the world and the world came into being through him and yet the world did not know him. So Jesus shows up, the source of all reality, like we talked about last week. He shows up on the scene and people miss it. How did they miss it? How did they miss Jesus? How did the world not know him? How can people miss the light? And is it possible that we ever miss it too? Is it possible that we ever have access to the source of all truth and goodness and presence and hope, and we sometimes neglect that for something temporary and shallow? Now, there's a thread in, in John's teaching about darkness, uh, and we're just going to look at three things he says in the Gospel of John specifically about darkness, about how it's possible that we miss the light, and we have to do a little honest self-diagnosis this morning to ask ourselves, is this ever us? Because we can talk about the light and that's exciting and hopeful and wonderful, but for the light to have any meaning or any impact, we've got to understand what the light is shining into, into the dark. We're just going to look at three. So John chapter 8, verse 12. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus said the following out of the blue. There's no context before this verse. It just says, and he was with the crowd again right? Jesus spoke again to the people. There's no, nothing, nothing else is going on. And he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will, ever not, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Um, have you ever walked into a piece of furniture or a wall in the dark? You know what I'm talking about? You wake up, you have to go to the bathroom and you're like, <laughs> I did this the other day. I walked right into a closed door because I couldn't see it. I'm trying to be quiet trying to make my way to the, the restroom, walked right into the door, big kaboom, you know, wake the whole house up. Uh, this has been several years ago, but 
We used to have, in our family room, we used to have a coffee table, and they designed coffee tables to be right just between the shin and the knee. Uh, and they put sharp edges in like all kinds of places on the coffee tables. It's dark in our family room. I'm kind of in a hurry. I need to cross grab something across back. So I'm walking fast, totally spaced that there's a coffee table there. And I hit a corner of the coffee table so hard and just right, just in the spot below my knee. I didn't know this, but you know like the Vulcan death grip, you know, on your shoulder? <laughs> there's a spot on your knee you can do that too. And no joke, hit it just right, and I had this passing thought, I'm sure as the blood drained from my head to the rest of my body, uh, that like, oh, I'd like to lie down now. I woke up, I don't know how long later, drooling, you know, like out the corner of my mouth, because on the floor of my family room, because I had hit this stupid coffee table just right. Now, I'll tell you what, that was the one and only time I ever did that. I learned my lesson. Living in spiritual darkness is like walking into the coffee table over and over and over again. See, humans think that making the same mistakes will produce different outcomes. We think, oh, hey, these selfish choices made me miserable in the past, but maybe this time this selfish choice will somehow pay off. Or an ill-advised relationship has gone down in flames. I ignored a bunch of red flags, but maybe this time, who knows? This could, I'll ignore the red flags again and we'll see what happens. Or how about this? There's a huge, tremendous problem in our world with pornography use. And, and guys get to a point where they're like, I don't, and girls too, it's, it's equal opportunity. Or I don't want to do that again. That isn't producing what I want. This, this isn't producing joy or happiness. And they, they get rid of it for a while, but like an addiction, it creeps back in. Like maybe this time it will work. On, online shopping, when I'm feeling upset. Maybe that will fill the void. Maybe this time. Or how about holding grudges? You've forgiven somebody one time and it feels so good to let go of that burden. And then the next time somebody offends you, mm, that, that desire to hold on to that grudge wells up again. Why let the fact that a given behavior has never once produced the desired result prevent us from doing it again and again and again? We're walking into the coffee table again and again and again. Talk about desperate futility. See, darkness isn't simply doing bad things. The way scripture describes darkness, it's about trying to make progress, but not knowing where you're going and stumbling all over the path and doing it again and again and again, thinking this time will be different. But why didn't we learn the lesson last time? I only walked into that coffee table one time and then my body remembered, let's not do that again. But somehow with sin, we're fooled into thinking this time it'll be different. And that's what Jesus says walking in the darkness is like. But if you follow me, he's like, you'll never do that. If you give yourself to me, you'll never do that. If you're on this journey with me, you'll never do that. You will have the light of life. The other thing Jesus talks about, this is earlier, he's having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, and it's an evening conversation because Nicodemus is trying to keep the fact that he's talking to Jesus on the down low. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he doesn't want to expose himself because all his Pharisees' buddies don't like Jesus. They view Jesus as a threat. So Nicodemus sneaks out to Jesus, talks to him at night, and in this long conversation, Jesus is trying to explain what it's all about, and Nicodemus just isn't getting it. He's not making sense to, to him. He just His whole way of thinking, the whole way he viewed the Hebrew law is just in contrast to what Jesus was presenting and just nothing is fitting. And so finally, at the end of this conversation, Jesus says, this is the verdict. 
Light has come into the world, but people love darkness. They love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. And here's the truth. Some people just simply love the darkness. Some people love the darkness. One Christmas season when the kids were little, we had some candy out. I don't remember. I think it was like chocolate-covered marshmallows. But that is, is that a thing? Is there, is there such a thing? A Christmas candy? Anyway, that's what I recall it being, chocolate-covered marshmallows. We had this candy out, and uh, we had a child who was three at the time, and we had told all the children, do not eat the chocolate-covered marshmallows. But it's like, that's like entrapment. I mean, what? There's just, how are they not going to do that? So we leave the room, and some of you are thinking, well, why didn't you remove the temptation? And our philosophy of parenting has always been to try to encourage obedience rather than make it impossible to disobey. So leave the stuff out and then teach them to try to obey. Well, of course, as soon as, so mom said, do not eat the chocolate-covered marshmallows. As soon as mom was out of the room, the three-year-old like reaches for the chocolate-covered marshmallow, uh, takes a big old satisfying bite, big old sticky, slobbery, wet bite. It's got, you know, size, full, full grab of, of chocolate marshmallow. And then mom walks back into the room. So Three-year-old is loving life. This is the best day of their short existence, (laughs) biting into this marshmallow. It's wonderful. Nothing could go wrong. Nothing could change the way I feel ever. I love everything about this moment. Then mom walks back into the room, and three-year-old realizes, oh, the light has shone, and tries to fling the marshmallow away. But the big sticky marshmallow will not be flung. It's stuck to his hand like super glue. And so he's looking at mom trying to fling the evidence of his infractions away because he knows he's done something wrong, caught chocolate-handed, the sin that so easily entangles, right? See, mom, in this scenario, is a reminder that there is a standard that I don't want to live by. And mom walks back into the room, and now we're in trouble again. I've heard complaints about church all my life, all my church life. I've heard complaints that say things like, oh, churches, they're just out to make you feel guilty. They're just out to make you feel guilty. Yes, there are churches that that's their whole thing. Their love language is guilt. It's not, it's not what I'm interested in. I've been around enough churches that marketed in guilt. I'm not interested in that. However, there are things we should feel guilty about. Guilt is not a bad thing when you're doing something self-destructive. Guilt is not a bad thing when you're doing something that's harming other people. In fact, guilt is a good thing because it's trying to reclaim what is good and true and help you understand that those behaviors aren't going to produce the results that you actually want. There are times we should feel guilty, but there are people who are like, I'm done with church. I felt guilty. Well, well, maybe, maybe the church was in the wrong. That's entirely possible. <laughs> that has happened. But maybe you were doing something and you didn't want to feel bad about it. You wanted to eat the marshmallow and you did not want mom to walk into the room. It's not mom's fault. It's yours. And, and heads up, this is important for us to mention Uh, Being around Jesus is the experience of realizing we'd been in the dark. But uh, honestly, if you're not interested in transformation as a human, if you're not interested in being more Christ-like, that exposure to the light feels heavy. It feels like a burden. It feels like a weight. And Scripture says it is dangerously easy to get used to the dark. Dangerously easy. And every time a light shines, you're like, no, thank you. 
Because you're used to this. You're used to this situation. You're used to the darkness. So how do we answer the darkness? Let's go back to the beginning of our text. John chapter 1, verse 5. How do we answer this? It says, it says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of your translations, like the one we read this morning, darkness has not grasped it. Um, my, I asked Karina if I could tell you this story. She said it was cool. My spouse's family um, was known for being a little lively in their interactions. I'm using euphemisms. Uh, they, the, the discussion could get a little rowdy, sometimes even heated. So Karina is telling me this story about growing up. It was just about dinner time. Dinner had been set out on the table and some argument had broken out and it was heated. Words were exchanged. Mistakes were made. But the food is sitting there getting cold, right? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let the food get cold in your anger. And they're a family who prays before the meal. So they kind of have to, it's kind of tough to go. It's like, have you ever, I, I, this probably doesn't happen quite as much anymore, but uh, have you ever been having some sort of altercation, uh, some tense family situation, and then your phone rings, and you've got to like put on the, the happy voice for the person on the other end of the line? You know, it's, it's kind of like that. Food's getting cold. We have to pray. We've just been having arguments. How do we kind of shake that off and get, get back into the groove here to eat? So they pray before the meal. Um, most of you, many of you know my father-in-law, Jerry, who passed uh, this, this past year. But his, his, uh, his, one of his greatest delights in life was to call on the person he thought was most annoyed to have to say the prayer. <laughs> so in this case, it was my brother-in-law, Andrew. He was probably 13 or 14 years old, and he's asked to say the prayer. And he started the prayer, and he went on autopilot, like we sometimes do, and just said, the words, right? You know, he's not really in a right frame of mind. He's just saying the words where you're supposed to say these words, but it's kind of disconnected from what's going on. So he says, Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the good time we're having. And he's about to wrap up his prayer. You know, let's eat. When Corrine's mom loudly interrupts him and says, declares to the room, we are not having a good time. <laughs> Stop the prayer. We're not having a good time. And that, that phrase is a great phrase because uh, it's become part of family lore. We are not having a good time, right? It's great. It's kind of become a little bit of a meme. Now, I can respect that because that's real. That's real because sometimes we do. We make that left turn in our relationship with God. Here's real life. Here's ugliness. Here's mess. And now we're going to just pretend like everything's all right with God. But we are not having a good time. There's no pretense there. And listen, I think this is the biggest danger of darkness in the church, and it happens all the time. You've done it, and I've done it. There's a phenomenon where Christians take their real lives. You know, the kids aren't perfect. The marriage isn't going well. You're not doing good. Mental health isn't great. You, they take all all of that, the we are not having a good time life, and they shove it in the closet when they get around other Christians. They leave it in the minivan when they come into the building. That's, that, that's the, and, and they put on this pretense and try to make ourselves what we think is supposed to be presentable. This happens a lot during the holidays. You've probably said it. Certainly your parents have probably said it. We just want the Hallmark movie. Can we not have 24 hours of peace and quiet and there not be any conflict? Can't we just pretend everything is normal for one day? 
You have maybe pled with your family to do that just to have the picture-perfect holiday. Some of you might be thinking that right now. Patrick, it's Christmas season. Can we not have a normal sermon? Can you not talk about darkness? And This is too much. But you know what the problem is? And what we're saying is, well, okay, we can't be perfect, but can we at least pretend we're perfect? I mean, isn't the next best thing to being perfect the pretense of perfection? Talk about desperate futility. Let me tell you why this is so dangerous. Number one, it is exhausting to keep up. It will just make things worse. <laughs> I'm case in point. This is like my go-to. Just pretend it's all right. Fake it till you make it, and it'll eventually be all right. No, it just gets worse. Secondly, you're not really fooling anyone. I saw this uh, meme I wanted to share you. It's so good. But every family's got secrets until a Bible class teacher asks the kids for prayer requests. <laughs> That's literally why some of you volunteer in the kids' wing. You're like, hey, little Joey, what's been going on in the family this week? Just let it, let it flow. Tell me all about it. You're not really fooling anyone with the pretense, right? You're not really fooling anyone. In fact, sometimes if things look too perfect, it really makes people suspicious. You know what I mean? But most importantly, most importantly, the light, the true light, the presence and goodness of God, that has to deal with the darkness. If we feel like we deal with the darkness by shoving it all in the closet, then we don't believe in the light. That's why this is so important. And that's why this is so dangerous, because some churches operate by this principle. And I don't want to be that kind of church. We're saying we really don't think light can answer the darkness. Let, let me give you this quote. It's by an author who wrote a book about Advent. And, of course, Advent is the season of Jesus coming, the expectancy, the waiting of Jesus coming to the world. This is by Fleming Rutledge. Uh, but she wrote, Advent is the season that, when properly understood, does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us in the world. We don't have to pretend that we have a hallmark Christmas movie life is what she's saying. Advent bids us to take fearless inventory of the darkness, the darkness without and the darkness within. That's what the light coming into the world was all about. It's not about pretending. It's not about acting so other people will believe everything's good. It's about letting the light heal us. It's about letting Jesus deal with our sin and uproot our sin and transform us and, and, and draw us into this new and better thing. But, and what John is saying in John chapter 1, verse 5, is that the light is always stronger than the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome it. Cannot. Cannot. It just, it's not possible. And that's why he says in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in him, Jesus, in him was life, and that light was, was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. And so here's my plea. This is, this is for me. And I've told you things like this before. But there have been many years, particularly given the fact that I work at a church and I get up on stage and I tell people what I think the Bible is trying to say, where there is such a temptation just to pretend, okay, just for this Sunday, you'll just get through this Sunday and then, and then you can go home and then, and then you can, you know, really let loose. But, but just pretend, just get through Sunday. And I, I don't want us to be that kind of place. 
I want us to be a place where even the guy on stage can admit there's darkness, that the light has to heal, but certainly where there's room for people in the room to say, hey, yeah, there's darkness in my life. And I haven't brought that darkness to the light. I haven't tried to get anybody else involved in this tough thing that's going on in my life that I don't know what to do. I'm just going to keep faking it till I make it, and it's been decades and I haven't made it. And all I think that we need to do, what John is encouraging us to do at Christmas, is to bring that darkness, the darkness in us, into the light and let Jesus take care of it. We're going to sing a song in closing. I'm going to ask the praise team uh, to come back up on stage. Uh, We're going to sing a song called Glory. Uh, One of the truths that we read in the Gospel of John is that Jesus was full of the glory. And that that glory might feel painful when we have darkness in our lives, when we have things that we wish were different, when we have marriages and children and jobs and sins that we wish weren't the case and and, and we're just trying to pretend till it's all okay, but it's not okay. And it's never going to be okay until we let the true light that has come into the world heal us. Let's stand and let's sing together.